data can be your additional sense, so to speak. So we, we can't see our customers online, unlike in a physical store. Data basically is your eyes and ears as to what's happening in the store. This is Dania Rusnak, co-founder of Datacop. After previously working with industry leaders on their data analytics, Dania works to ensure companies understand why and how to track their data. It's not just numbers in a database. Of course, it's very abstract. It needs to be set up properly, it needs to be interpreted properly, and it needs to be then, those insights need to be thought about and tested into practice. So it's a difficult three-stage process. This episode is all about data tracking. We'll be discussing what it is, how you can track, and why it is essential for many businesses as a competitive advantage. Because Mm -hmm. you can see much better than your competitors as to what's happening in your own backyard. We'll also be discussing data protection, referring to the GDPR or the General Data Protection Regulation and other data protection laws, providing practical insights in how to be compliant as a business. This is Savvy with Sparring, where we talk to founders, investors, and people in the startup ecosystem about entrepreneurship and getting a business off the ground. I'm Annabelle Pemberton, Legal Mind at Sparring, and I'll be guiding you through how business and law mesh together. Datacop is an analytics and growth hacking agency for e-commerce. Our mission is to pioneer how to extract the most amount of value from data in the digital economy. And there are two primary ways uh, we go about this. So firstly, we help digital startups and companies make sense of their data. We help setting them up with the correct data architecture. We often then help with interpreting those signals from the data into insights. In terms of results, extracting value from data in the digital economy usually would result into either increased user engagement, increased revenue for those digital companies, or save man hours in those teams. And then secondly, what we like to do is we translate the data practices and techniques of big data companies or big tech companies such as Amazon and Google into solutions for the mid-sized e-commerce segment. So how much work is it to track your data? And how does Daniel work with startups to help them map their data? It really depends on the maturity of the client. So we have worked with startups where I think they haven't really thought about data that much. We start with perhaps even identifying what's possible to track. And part of that would also be distinguishing whether what's being tracked is personal data and isn't. In this episode, we will be focusing on the topic of data protection and specifically data tracking. But data protection laws apply to specific types of data, which is personal data. And of course, one of the big important things is that most of the regulation only concerns personal data. And that's, that's, for example, something that many companies don't always recognize. So what is personal data or personally identifiable information? Due to this misconception, some startups end up over-regulating themselves, meaning data protection stifles their innovation. It is therefore important to know that personal data is data that can identify an individual. Some common examples are first name, surname, address, email, and data related to health. Remember to also consider how you could identify someone if you aggregate data together. For example, a name and location could be personal data if you could find them together, whereas a location just separately from any other information is just a location. 
So data tracking. Perhaps you are already using Google Analytics and you might be thinking, why do you need to know even more at this point? Why can't you just leave it until a later stage when you're growing as a business? I think the, the team needs to have a think at some point at the beginning when they're forming their business model to see whether data would be a strategic asset for them. If they're a digital company, it is very likely that data would be some form of a strategic asset. And I think given this context, I think there's two main pieces of advice that we've seen from experience. And number one is having a strong idea of what your data strategies at the beginning can save you a lot of time down the line. What we mean by that is having a general idea of what data you probably want to collect and what you probably want to do with it. So, of course, analytics in itself, seeing what's happening is usually on the list. But for many digital companies, that data may be part of the final product or final service or may be critical in facilitating the final product or service. So how should startups think about their data structure? Thinking about it only at the point of scaling, when it becomes relevant, may at that point, you're growing so fast and making so many decisions that very often startups bungle it up if they didn't have a data strategy understood within the management team beforehand. The reason for this is a lot of decisions around data are thought to be technical. Well, that's true in some aspect. In many ways, they, they also reflect the priorities uh, of the company the business objectives of, of the company. And these are often some of the most difficult questions at the heart of what the company is doing. And that's why it shouldn't be done on the fly once you're scaling and you're, you realize that, oh, well, now we're starting to have a lot of customers, so we should collect some data on them. No, it's at that point where you realize that it's starting to happen and you know that you need to hire a team of people that should be responsible for this. What can startups learn from mid-size enterprises' data strategies? I ask Dania what steps he takes with their clients. Usually what we see is by this point in 2021, many companies would have their data architecture set up relatively well. And most of the challenges now are more in the interpretation section where majority of the industry professionals find themselves having a lot of data at their disposal and not really knowing what to do with it. What I think we help with is taking that investment into that data, into that architecture, and uh, bringing those returns, maximizing the return on that value. What is the different ways you can extract value from your data? And what we see is actually that it's still, an un there's still a lot of unexplored areas of how data can be used, particularly in the mid-size segments. I would say it's a very iterative process. So it all begins with the audit and understanding where they are at the moment with their data understanding. Once we have an understanding of where they are, we would bring that to them and verify with them whether they perhaps missed out on things or maybe they haven't told us on certain areas. And in that process, we really find out the, the level of maturity they're in. And at that point, we can start designing solutions for them. So in some instances, that would be setting up a tracking document where you would take all the data you can possibly want to collect and put it into a structure that you can communicate across the company or externally even. And it's also useful for your regulatory 
concerns later on once you scale up. While different to the tracking document, if you process sensitive data or have over 250 employees, it is important for you to also map how you're processing data in your startup, including the tools you're using, where the data leaves the EU and the mechanisms that you have in place, and under which legal basis you're processing this data. But remember, this is only of personal data. Creating a tracking document could also help you with this process, and here is how it is created. Sometimes it can be in the form of well, let's take two years and millions of points of data that you already have, and let's look into it. Let's identify opportunities where you can improve something or perhaps identify problems that can be solved in that data. Usually with, with enough scale, you can start seeing where your digital platforms, whether it be e-commerce or whatever else you're creating, where the cracks are, what needs to be optimized, what are your customers really doing? Very often, many companies from their data would like to read what customers they actually have. So that's a very interesting uh, analysis always to do with the client. And again, it's very iterative. So some things are more technical and straightforward, and some things are very dependent on each of those different digital contexts, really. So what are, why are those people going to the website? Why are they, what data are we tracking, as we mentioned before? And what are we trying to achieve? So if we are a comparison websites for cars, then maybe your conversion goal is only just to get someone's personal data, to get their phone number so you can call them and set a meeting with them to see the car. Of course, in case of a fashion e-commerce shop, that would usually be things like getting people to add to their basket and actually purchasing and then making them come back somehow or incentivizing them to come back and purchase again. So it, it really depends. And in all those circumstances, the amount and level of personal data that you're really collecting varies. In the examples Dania just gave, you can hear that it really depends on your end objective, whether you are collecting personal data or not. However, it is important that even when you are tracking clicks on a website and a user's interaction with the page, that you're ensuring a tool like Google Analytics is collecting anonymized data. How would an example with an e-commerce store look in practice with automated reporting? Once an e-commerce shop starts having more than a thousand products on their site, we know from data that a customer in a typical browsing session doesn't really see more than two or three products on average. And so it is impossible for a single visitor to really see all of their selection. And the, with a lot of users coming onto the site from a lot of different traffic points, it becomes very difficult without a systematic reporting to see which products are actually performing better than others because you start having thousands and thousands of products in tens of categories. Automated reporting would allow you to then essentially, we, that's something we would do, right? So we would spend two months slicing and dicing that data and also discussing with the client how exactly it needs to be set up and then work with them to be able to interpret those insights in the company into action. So for instance, you would be in an electronic store that has say 20,000 plus products active in their catalog. You would see every week the top 20 trending products in each of their main categories. So these were the top keyboards, these were the top products in general. And 
for instance, what you would be able to see with that analysis is last year when COVID was starting, electronic stores experienced a surge in equipment regarding working from home. And it really took them a while to realize that this is happening and react to it. And the ones that had better analysis were able to create prepackaged tools and really take advantage of this trend that's happening before their competitors. So they would be able to switch their email and their PPC to, to really reflect this change in communication, which at the time meant a lot of re- extra revenue. And what about another example in using the data about the website juice and optimizing it around this? The process of where we take the data and identify biggest opportunities for optimization and then create a few hypotheses and then test them with A-B tests and see whether, whether they have the desired effect. And with that systematic approach, if you're big enough, you can, you can start having double-digit percentage growths on your projects, which if you're having several million of, uh, euros a year or more, that can start really to add up over the course of several such of these projects. So now you have a bit more background on how to use your product or brand's data to its best potential. But to do this, how should you consider a user's privacy and ensure you act in line with data protection laws? While a cookie banner and privacy policy are required, Dania suggests approach which is unusual but practical. And by the way, it's important to remember here that Dania is referring to risks for e-commerce companies, which are typically handling lower risk data. So from what we've seen, uh, there are two most common categories of errors e-commerce firms do when uh, they deal with personal data. And I think number one is overestimating risks. And number two is not being ambitious enough, not being ambitious enough with educated risks. Some companies struggle identifying which of their data is personal data, where they take any data they've collected that's digital into the category of that's, that's dangerous to play with. And that's, that's a very bad reading of the situation. As we mentioned before, in most digital situations, data really isn't private. It has to, if we look into the GDPR definition, it has to be personally, it needs to be able to actually identify a physical person. So it's usually things like phones and emails, email addresses, physical addresses, IP addresses. But in many instances, you don't actually collect personal data. And in that case, it doesn't really fall under all of those regulations. The point is overestimation resulting from not really understanding which of your data is actually even applied within the regulation. While distinguishing between personal data and non-personal data is one thing, what should startups know about GDPR, which will perhaps make them less worried about it? But secondly, lack of understanding of GDPR in general causes certain situations where being too risk averse would lead to, for example, some large legacy retailers we've met in the marketplace. They would have hundreds of thousands of email addresses they've collected throughout the transaction process. So completely legitimate transaction of personal data. And they would essentially refuse to send emails at all. And as because it was deemed too risky to, to do now, They're not a traditional digital retailer, so they probably don't realize that this channel, not utilizing this channel, is both cheap and provides around 5 to 10% of all revenue in most online uh, retail cases. So they're missing out on a lot of legitimate revenue as a result of 
being overly cautious. To explain this, let's look into how you can legally process data under GDPR. Under GDPR, there are five legal basises that you can process data under. However, there's three that you really should keep in mind. With consent to process information, this will occur when you're tracking using third-party cookies on a website or whether you're sending marketing emails to one of your customers. You need to make sure that the user actually explicitly opts in themselves, and then you have the consent from the individual. However, you can also send emails to individuals if you have a prior existing relationship with them. So this could be if they've already purchased something from your website and you've already been in contact with them before. Just make sure that you're not emailing anyone who's actually actively opted out after opting in in the past. The other areas are legitimate interest and contract. So legitimate interest. One way that this can happen is if someone orders something from your website and you need to send them delivery information. This is going to be under legitimate interest because they actually need to receive this information whether they've opted in or they haven't opted into your marketing emails because they need it to actually receive the products that they've ordered from you. Finally, with contract, this is going to be more common when you're working with your employees in e-commerce. Say, for example, you employ someone in your team, then you're going to be processing that employment data under contract. Understanding that there's multiple legal basises to collect and process data will make it less restrictive for you. Secondly, I see many companies not being ambitious enough in asking for personal data. So as a result of the lack of education, GDPR is often perceived as a tool to spook companies to not work with personal data. I believe, quite on the other hand, that it's, it's a healthy adjustment to a lot of public concerns reg regarding how data is used. And it's created a new framework of behavior between big data collectors, whether Facebook or even much smaller players, and the individual data subject. And what that means is those data players that are data collectors, they can collect more ambitious personal data because now the user has a enforceable legal system they can fall back to. It, it's not just them, them as a physical person having a conflict with, with a big company, but there is a set of laws that, that everyone knows and can play by. Certain companies are starting to realize this and for example, in e-commerce, starting to asking for more private data. So for instance, even if they don't have to. In response to restrictions on third-party data and data protection regulations, e-commerce and e-shops are shifting to directly asking for data rather than inferring it from a user's behavior. So for instance, an example of that would be Zara online, which if you are look, picking out a size for the first time, you have the option to enter your measurements in, in terms of your height, your weight. So quite personal information for many people, but they communicate very effectively throughout that entire journey that it's used to help them uh, find the better fit, size fit for them, which is a very common issue in fashion e-commerce. While brands should be collecting first, second, third, and zero party data and directly asking users for data, they should also make sure they have security measures in place to protect that data. GDPR requires that you have technical and organizational security measures in place. I don't expect Zara getting any legal backlash from regulators or consumers about this because it's, it's, 
it abides by that framework. And in fact, it very much likely increases the customer experience for Zara and in the end probably makes them more money. So what are those legislations? GDPR applies to European citizens. However, in the last five years, other data protection frameworks have been created to ensure people's personal data is handled transparently and fairly. Data protection has become not just a competitive advantage, but a necessity for any business. For example, even in the US, more data protection laws are coming into effect or in draft status at the moment. The CCPA or the California Consumer Privacy Act and the New York data protection regulations that are coming into force are prominent advances in giving citizens' rights closer to that of European citizens. But data protection, like other laws governing technology, is changing fast. Recently, we have seen Apple iOS changes, meaning users need to opt into tracking and plans of Chrome removing third-party cookies by the end of 2022. Will this mean the death of e-commerce tracking data as well? Dania explains how it indicates a change in business structure, strategy, and how users browse the internet. The data subject should have an expectation that by using the service, some totally random service I've never heard of also knows me. Data controllers get huge market power when they scale. GDPR is asking them to not misuse that and abuse that power. That's what's happening. It's not there to constrict innovation. In, in fact, the broad way it was the the broad way it has defined many key aspects of the digital economy in or in their aspect has opened it up to be a regulation that's likely going to evolve in the next two decades. In general, we see that the internet is becoming a far more uh, regulated place. I think it's not coming just from big companies uh, like Google and Apple from the concerns of self regulation responding to consumer pressures. But also over the past five years, there's been a number of legislations increasing. In general, the way the industry we see responding to this is through gatekeeping of personal data. So what we mean by that is you will have more and more companies, more and more websites asking you to sign in before you see a core part of the service or core part of the product. This is already very familiar to us from big tech companies like Netflix or Amazon and Google. It's extremely beneficial for both the user and the company to to have that. Websites that didn't really need to have a sign in to use their uh, services or products will probably have to change a little bit. And we already see e-commerce websites experiencing with hiding a a part of their selection and only allowing users that have given consent with their email to see that. And maybe maybe that's an answer or the the balance that e-commerce can find where it's really the point where you you share your email with us is where we start having a much deeper relationship with you. The brand has a great opportunity to present itself, what it does, why they want to collect that data from you and what the customer is going to expect to see once they do that. And for the user, they can take a moment to really think whether they want to have that relationship with that brand. And I think that's what GDPR ultimately was about, is to give consumers a bigger opportunity to think how their data is used and who who they're sharing it with. And gatekeeping and the death of the third-party cookie is probably 
contributing to a more healthy exchange of data between consumers and brands. So with the law changing, how do I ensure I am legally collecting data in my startup? In situations that are understood by the industry, you follow the law in the given geographical area. And you want to make sure that you understand that law. And in situations that are new to the industry, which is common in, in digital, you want to follow the spirit of the law. And I think take, take educated risks about how the relevant stakeholders will react. So what we mean by that is you need to know who those stakeholders would be. So the end consumer or the brand, are we, what is the data we're working with? And once you have that assessment, take an educated risk about whether, whether it's doable. If we go back to the example of, of the Zara shop, if there was a lawyer who had zero practical experience in that meeting, that use case would have not happened because it would have scared them that centimeters of your height and the kilograms of your weight can, in many databases, identify you. If you don't understand how that would work and how that you can use that, that may sound scary. But if you do, then I think you can take that educated guess. And if you do, if also that understand that you're actually solving a very common customer pain by collecting that data, it really starts switch from taking educated risk to a potential opportunity that you're missing. We've only scratched the surface in this episode on this topic. And if you take one thing away about data protection law and data tracking in practice, it's that you shouldn't let the law stifle your creativity. If anything, it's a reason for you to get closer to your customers, understand their needs, and build that trust with them so you can still collect data, but not do it in a non-compliant or creepy way. You can learn more about data protection law by heading to playbook.sparring.io where we have a guide on data protection for you as well as templates if you're transferring any of your company's personal data to a service provider or a processor. This podcast is created by Sparring, the legal and strategic service for tech visionaries.